Father, we thank you for the we thank you for the power of the Word of God. And and there is power in your word. One verse read in a moment of hopelessness can completely change our outlook because it's from you and it's true. You are the God who you are truth. You cannot lie. And we thank you that we have the scriptures and that they can be trusted. And that you have given them to us as a guide, as a map as a treasure of your wisdom and your knowledge and it helps us to fight off despair and depression and those times when we are exhausted and fatigued and out of gas and think that we can't go on. Like apples of gold and settings of silver is a word spoken in right circumstances. Sometimes as we interact with others, that'll happen. One believer will just say something to another, and it's the right word at the right moment. That comes from you. In your word, now and then, We'll be studying, we'll be reading, and we'll see something in your word we've never seen before. We've read it before, but it's never stood out like that before. And it hits us between the eyes, and it grabs us, and it begins to do a work in us, and it changes our perspective. Even though our circumstances haven't changed one iota, it begins to do a work it begins to alter our thinking. It begins to get our eyes off of what's around us and get our eyes upon you. It reminds us perhaps of who you are and what you promised. This is the power of your word. It is not an idle word for you, Moses said. It is your life. So we're here to study your word. We're we're men and we're busy and we have responsibilities. And we are men who are God-fearing men. We believe that the beginning, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. We thank you for the gospel, that we heard it, that you opened our eyes so that we could perceive it and understand it and you regenerate us, and you drew us to yourself, and you changed us completely and totally. And now we are your men, and we are your followers. We are your people and the sheep of your pasture. And we're living life, and it's busy, and it's full, and it's frantic. 
it's full of challenges and disappointments. And here and there a victory. We get fatigued and we get tired. So we look to you. Make this time valuable tonight. Steer us, navigate us. Save us from ourselves. And perhaps some in here have taken a step or two down a path they should not go down. Get our attention. Instruct us. Give us what we need. And quite honestly, we don't even know what we need. But you do. So we'll trust you. And my God shall supply all of my needs according to his riches and glory. We honor you tonight and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So our key passage for this whole semester is going to be Proverbs chapter 4. I'd like you to turn there with me as we begin tonight. In, in Proverbs chapter 4, you get a nugget. Um, back in 1849, at Sutter's Mill in California, the guy found a nugget, and uh, everything changed in California. You'll find nuggets as you read the scripture. And Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23, is one of those nuggets. It's a big nugget. It's a nugget you can build your life on. It is, uh, it is foundational to everything in the Christian life. Proverbs 4.23 simply says this, watch over your heart. Some translations will say, guard your heart. Watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flows the springs of life. Now that is a foundational verse for the Christian life. Uh, earlier this week, I, was, I came across an article in one of the Christian magazines, and they had interviewed 18 different leaders and asked them to respond to what do you see as the biggest challenge to the, to the Church of Jesus Christ in 2018. And um, I read through all the answers and they were, all, they were all excellent. They were all good. They all hit it from a little bit different perspective. Um, it was good stuff. But none of them mentioned Proverbs 4, verse 23. And in my mind, it... it as I was reading through all of the things they said that were legitimate and that were things to be concerned about and to be aware of, and 
none of them trump this. This is the most important thing in the Christian life. Watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flows the springs of life. And then as we saw last week, it immediately then goes to the mouth, and then it goes to the eyes, and then it goes to the feet, which, which path you'll take. You see, everything comes out of the heart. John Phillips tells the story of Sir Walter Raleigh, and he was, as you know, one of the great adventurers and sea captains of Britain under the reign of Queen Elizabeth I. Um, she, she loved him. He was, he was a great man and a great explorer. But the man who took the throne after her, James I, did not like him at all. And things got to a point where James I sentenced Sir Walter Raleigh to death by um, decapitation, putting him on the block and taking the axe. As he walked up the steps to the place of execution, the man who was going to execute him had great sympathy for him, uh, was was favorable towards him, felt that it was unjust, but he had a job to do. And as Sir Walter Raleigh knelt, he tried to help him position his head in just the right way so it would be swift. And as he was trying to position him and think and, and get his head correctly situated, Sir Walter said, uh, thank you, my friend, but actually it matters little whether or not the head is right so long as the heart is right. That was brilliant. And that was true. Actually, that could have been his epitaph. It matters little whether or not the head is right so long as the heart is right. The heart is central in Christianity. The heart is central in the Bible. When we speak of the heart, um, as we said last week, we're not talking about that, that thing you get, a, maybe a heart monitor when you work out, we're not recording the beats and all. We're not talking about the physical heart. We're talking about the spiritual heart. Think through with me for a moment uh, what the Scripture says about the heart. In Deuteronomy 6, 5, the first and greatest commandment is, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart. Um, Sinclair Ferguson points out that when God was replacing Saul as king, Saul had disqualified himself because he didn't have a heart for the Lord. So the Lord said in 1 Samuel 13 that he was going to seek out a man who was a man after his own heart. David was a man after God's own heart. 
Uh, David was not an impressive figure. Saul was an impressive figure. He was the tallest man in Israel. He looked like a leader. But you see, in that context, in 1 Samuel 16, 7, it says, man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Some people just wouldn't cut it in a political career because so much of what is how you appear on television. Ever since that debate between Nixon and Kennedy, and uh, that, that was... Boy, that was, a, that was a benchmark in American politics because for the first time, television, I mean, that played a key role. Nixon just looked sinister. Uh, a lot of evangelical people thought Nixon was one of them. Um, he came from a Quaker home. He was... Uh, he was a friend of evangelicals. Uh, he was close with Billy Graham. And then the tapes came out. And even Billy Graham was stunned. I had no idea. I had no idea that was his language. I had no idea that was... Because, you see, Nixon, who was sinister... By the way, Kennedy beat him because Kennedy looked like some kind of prince. Uh, Nixon didn't look that way. So people are looking on the outward appearance. Kennedy is more attractive. He's more, you know, winsome. He's more, oh. So the outward appearance, Kennedy's going to win hands down. But God doesn't look out. He looks heart. What is the heart? Here's a little biblical primer that Sinclair Ferguson put together on the heart. We went over this last week. The heart is the central core and drive of my life intellectually. When the Bible talks about the heart, it's primarily talking about your mind. It also involves your soul, its mind, emotions, its will, its you. It's everything about you. It's what's inside this body. I saw my grandfather at his funeral. I was seven years old. There was an open casket. I walked up with my dad, and I looked in there, and I thought to myself, he's not in there. There was no heart. There was no, there was no grandpa. It was just a shell. He was with the Lord. His soul was with the Lord. Um, so Ferguson here says, what is the heart? The heart's the central core and drive of my life intellectually. Uh, is my heart healthy? Question two. No, by nature I have a diseased heart. We looked last week at Jeremiah 17, the heart is desperately sick and wicked. Who can know it? Can my diseased heart be healed? Question three. Yes, God in his grace can give me a new heart. 2 Corinthians 5, if any man is in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things pass away, all things become new. So when we hear the gospel and we're regenerated by the Holy Spirit and we respond to the Lord Jesus, uh, we're new creatures, new hearts. So my heart can be healed, but I still have a sin nature, and i got to fight it off. Question four, how does God do this? Well, God does this through the work of the Lord Jesus for me and the ministry of the Holy Spirit. He illumines my mind through the truth of the gospel, frees my enslaved will from his bondage to sin, cleanses my affections by his grace, and motivates me inwardly to live for him by rewriting his law into my heart so that I begin to love what he loves. It's called being born again. 
Does this mean, question five, I'll never sin again? No, I'll continue to struggle with sin until I'm glorified. God's given me a new heart, but for the moment, he wants me to keep living in a fallen world. So day by day, I face the pressures to sin that come from the world, the flesh, and the devil. But God's word promises that over all these enemies, I can be more than a conqueror through him who loved us. Question six, what four things does God counsel me to do so that my heart may be kept for him? First, I must guard my heart as if everything depended on it. That's Proverbs 4. Second, I must keep my heart healthy by proper diet, growing strong on a regular diet of God's word, reading it for myself, meditating on its truth, being fed on it by the preaching of the word. Um, this is why Jesus said in Matthew 4, 4, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God is in the scripture. 2 Timothy 3.16, all scriptures inspired by God. God breathed and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, training, and righteousness that the man of God may be equipped, uh, adequate for every good work. Uh, in the opening verses of Psalm 119, how can a young man keep his way pure? Now, there's a question for you, especially in this day and age. I, I was talking with a guy this week and his 15-year-old son who's He's got a sexting thing going on with this girl. And the girl started it. I mean, he didn't ask for it. It just, I, I mean, can you imagine this? I mean, we live in another, whew. this world we are in is evil. And it is wicked. Uh, we are living in days of exceptional evil. Well, how can a young man keep his way pure? Psalm 119, the opening verses say, by keeping it according to thy word. Uh, thy word I have hid in my heart that I may not sin against thee. You, you see, there's power in the word of God. Uh, Romans 12, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, heart. So we start feeding on scripture. Um, uh, the third thing, I, I must take regular spiritual exercise. I must worship. Four, I must give myself to prayer. I, I don't want to spend too much time on this. The scripture has a tremendous amount to say about the heart. Uh, tonight, I want to make five observations about the heart. We're, we're going to be looking uh, this semester at the heart, and um, we're going to be looking at principles of the heart that were told in scripture that are all encompassed in the idea of guarding your heart, for out of it flows the springs of life. Uh, the first observation I want to make is simply this. The heart must be right if the life is to be right. I'll, bo I'll borrow that from uh, Sir Walter Raleigh. The heart must be right if the life is to be right. This is why we are to guard our hearts. Uh, we're to guard our minds. We're to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. We looked at this passage last week. We ought to look at it again. Uh, go with me to Matthew 15. And I, I don't want to repeat too much here, but we, we are pounded in this culture 
with wrong messages about our heart. Oh, just listen to your heart. Well, that depends. Do, do you, what's in your heart? Do you know the Lord or do you not know the Lord? Um, just listen to your heart. Go with your heart. Well, what's in your heart? Well, we assume in this culture that everyone is basically good. The scripture says everyone is not basically good. In, in Matthew 15, verse 18, the things, which, the things that proceed out of the mouth come from the heart. The things that proceed out of the mouth come from the heart. And those defile the man. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adulteries, fornications. We think it's environment. Now, environment can play a role. But you see, the environment you're raised in and your parents are a certain way, why do they behave the way they do? Because of what's in their hearts. For out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, slanders. These are the things which defile the man. So our heart is sick. It's desperately sick, wicked. Who can know it? Okay. Second observation. Now, and again, when we come to Christ, we have a new heart, and we want to tend our heart. We want to guard it. We want to protect it. We don't want to, fin we don't want to feed the sin nature. We don't want to listen to wrong counselors. Um, okay, second observation. And this goes back to what we talked about last week. The heart determines a man's epitaph. The heart determines a man's epitaph because the heart is the source of all of his behavior. One more time. The heart determines a man's epitaph because the heart is the source of all of his behavior. So you have statements in Scripture in this, in this, in this study. Our, our study, I mean, I think the title on the website is uh, Epitaph Forged in Stone Forever or something like that. Um, you die and you're going to die. Just wanted to encourage you. You're going to die. There'll be a service. There'll be some kind of marker, and it'll be your name and your date of birth and your date of death, and then there'll be some kind of epitaph, which is somewhat of a summary of how you lived your life. The heart determines a man's epitaph because the heart is the source of all his behavior. Okay. Three. This is where we're going to land tonight, and this is, we're going to drive a Mack truck through this tonight. A man's heart cannot be right if the man is not teachable. A man's heart cannot be right if the man is not teachable. I remember speaking about 30 years ago at a Campus Crusade for Christ Christmas conference. They would put on for college students. It was the week uh, after Christmas and before New Year's. And they would have these regional conferences around the United States, Campus Crusades Ministry on all kinds of campuses. This was in Denver uh, about 30 years ago. Maybe 400, 500 students in a hotel, ballroom. 
And you know, they get the music, and then I taught for, it was a great time, it was a lot of fun. And I did a morning session, and then we did a break, and you know, kids are talking, and I'm talking to some people, and then it was time to get going. So I, I was down here talking to someone, and I turned to walk up to the platform, and just as I was getting ready to walk up, four or five uh, young women, 18, 19, 20, something like that, came up to me and said, Mr. Farrar, and I wasn't used to be calling, no one called me Mr. Farrar, but they were like 18, 19, or 20, and I was almost 40, and to them I was an old guy. It was really my first, one of the first times I remember that. It was really <laughs> kind of shocking. I, I was looking around for my dad. I, I didn't know he was there, but they met me. Mr. Farrar, and I said, yeah. And they said, can we ask you a quick question? And I said, well, I got to start the next session. Just one question, just, it'll just take a minute. I said, go ahead. They said, we all hope to be married one day. If there's just one trait we should look for in a potential husband, what should it be? Now, I didn't have much time, and I just said money. <laughs> Money. <laughs> yeah. I didn't say that. What I said was, the one trait I look for is, is he teachable? Because if he's teachable, he's going to be okay. If he's not teachable, don't get near him. Run. Because if he's not teachable, he'll never grow. If he's not teachable, he'll never learn. If he's not teachable, he'll never be the leader that you need him to be in your home. I'd stick with that. One of the things that a man must do with his heart, in guarding his heart, is making sure that you've got a teachable heart. Dave Harvey is a longtime pastor, um, ministry leader. He writes these words, list List, L-I-S-T-S. Lists can be remarkably instructive and challenging, especially when they appear in articles and blog posts that address matters related to Christian living and leadership. This is an article that he has written in the uh, ESV study Bible, men's Bible, on leadership. He goes on and says, the Bible is big on lists. There are lists of things to avoid, there are lists of things to do, and a list of leadership qualities in 1 Timothy 3 and in Titus 1. A list of qualities for those that serve in the church as elders and then deacons. Uh, there are lists concerning the works of the flesh, which we are to avoid, Galatians 5, 19 to 21. And then right after that, there are lists of the fruit of the Spirit, which we are to seek, Galatians 5, 22 to 23. He goes on and says, I've been a Christian for 53 years and in vocational Christian ministry for 45 years. During this time, I've given a great deal of thought to the content of all the many lists in Scripture. And I have come to the measured conclusion that when it comes to the indispensable qualities for being a leader in the body of Christ and in life in general, there is one characteristic that perhaps should be placed at the very top. Teachability. He's absolutely on the money. You'll never mature if you're not teachable. 
You'll never grow in grace if you're not teachable. You will turn people away from Christ if you're not teachable. You will confuse people if you're not teachable. He says to be teachable means that you have the mindset of a lifelong learner. You are consistently open to learning from anyone at any time on any topic. There is no way to escape the fact that being teachable is foundational to spiritual growth and character development in all areas in our walk with the Lord. So I'm going to read that one more time because he's absolutely right. There is no way to escape the fact that being teachable is foundational to spiritual growth and character development in all areas of our walk with the Lord. Christianity is a character profession. It's about developing Christ-like character. Let him who steals, steal no longer. It says in Ephesians or Colossians. There's a, when, there's a, when there's a change in heart, there's a change in behavior. Why? Because old things have passed away. All things have become new. But if you're not teachable, you're going to be stunted. You're going to be a perpetual spiritual infant. That's why teachability is so critical. We'll come back to this in a moment. My fourth observation tonight is that Ezra's epitaph, Ezra's epitaph, E-Z-R-A apostrophe S, Ezra's epitaph makes him the model of a teachable leader. We looked at this, we, we quoted some epitaphs last week, because you'll, you'll see, especially in the Old Testament, about the kings, um, and I'm doing this off the top of my head. Uh, it'll talk about their life, what they did, how long they ruled. Amaziah loved the Lord, but not with a whole heart. That encapsulates his entire life and his behavior his whole life. Um, Last semester, we talked about Diotrephes in 3 John 9, who was a leader in the church, an elder. Diotrephes, who loves to be first. Boy, what an epitaph. Christian leader, who loves to be first. Well, then that means you're not a Christian leader. That means you have the position, but you're not a leader. Just because you have the position doesn't mean you're a leader. It just means you have the title. Titles don't make you a leader. CEO, CFO, uh, Professor Emeritus. Uh, a, a, titles, a title is a title. In, in America, uh, we, we have this thing. We think titles make you a leader. We think academic degrees make you a leader. Or you went to a certain school. That makes you a leader. No, it just you went to a certain school. It means you, you knew how to work the system. I mean, you had the grades. 
and you had the smarts and you could write some essays and you could do this and you did enough, yeah, you know, you researched them and knew they were looking for certain things, so you did some kind of community service. In my day, it didn't have to, you didn't have to do this. Now, if you want to get into the elite, you got to, and you know, not everyone gets in. But we put a, a, a huge emphasis on academics. We put a huge emphasis on titles, um, on degrees. I've said this before in here. I had a guy years ago in the early 90s at a Christian business guy's luncheon in Dallas. I don't know this guy from Adam, but he handed me a business card. It was the most impressive business card I've ever seen in my life. And I'm not kidding. It had his name. He was CEO. He was uh, CFO. He was founder. He was partner. He was managing partner. It, he was, and then it said over, and you go in the back. And, and it was PhD, THD, uh, D-men, and, and I'm exaggerating on the over part. But I've never seen so many titles on a card and so many academic degrees. Now, I don't know this guy from Adam. He could be the greatest leader in Texas for all I know. I don't know him. But I know this. None of that stuff from that card makes him a leader. It makes him look like a leader. But you see, you're only, as Howard Hendricks used to say, you're only a leader if you lead. And I'm going to tell you something. God's men don't need titles to lead. And they don't need this and they don't need that because it comes out of their heart. Out of their heart. As they're led by the Spirit of God and His Word. You see what I'm saying? Nothing wrong with a title or a degree. You know what I'm saying. But you don't base your life on it. Ezra was a model. Let's go to Ezra 7. Not a lot in Scripture about Ezra. He has a book. If you're in Proverbs, go left. And you're going to run into... Job and Nehemiah, and then you're going to run into Ezra. Uh, he had a book named after him, and uh, we looked at it a little bit last week. After they were in captivity in Babylon for 70 years, they went back to Jerusalem. Uh, God prompted this pagan king, Cyrus, to finance their return, and fascinating stuff. But after they were there about 60 years, they kind of grew cold spiritually, and that's when Ezra shows up in Ezra 7 because the Lord's going to use him uh, to teach the people and reform them and revive them. Uh, I'd like us to look at uh, verse 10. Uh, this is really Ezra's epitaph. This is how he is remembered, and it's a great epitaph. He was a priest, uh, so if he were alive today, he would be a pastor. Uh, it, it tells us in verse 6, this Ezra went up from Babylon. He was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses. He was skilled in the scriptures. Uh, verse 10 says, now watch this epitaph. This is how this guy is remembered. For Ezra had set his, what? Heart. Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to practice it and to teach his statutes and ordinances in Israel. That is his epitaph that describes his behavior, that describes his life. It describes the purpose of his life. That's how he's remembered. Notice what it doesn't say. 
It doesn't say, for Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to teach his statutes and ordinances in Israel. It doesn't say that. We left something out. For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to practice it. Some translations say, do it. See, and this is the heart of the matter. It's possible to be knowledgeable of the scripture, but not apply it to your life. And if that is the case, you've missed the entire point. The purpose of the scripture, Paul told Timothy, let me show you this verse, 1 Timothy 4, 16. Hey, Timothy, pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. In other words, what you're going to teach should be affecting your behavior and your attitudes and how you live your life. Derek. Kidner, the great Old Testament commentator on this verse, speaks of this verse, Ezra 7.10. He says, Ezra is a model reformer in that, now watch this, he's a model reformer in that what he taught, he had first lived. He practiced. He did it. He didn't just get it to teach. He did it. He studied it because he wanted to know what God was saying and he wanted to do it. He wanted it to change him and to transform him. That's why David said in Psalm 51 after his great sin with Bathsheba, he, he cried out, create in me a new heart, O God. I blew it. I, I, I ruined my life. Can you somehow give me another shot? And that's what the Lord does. We come to him in repentance. He always gives us another shot. Don't let the enemy ever say to you, oh, I, man, this is, you know how many times I failed? You, many, you know how many times I've fallen short? You know how many times I said I was going to do this and I failed? And, yeah, 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 yeah. Well, the Lord knows. He knows it. Too. He knows it. He knows it more accurately than you do. But he will in no wise cast out those who come to him. You just go to him. You just run to him. You don't run away from him. You run to him. It's amazing grace. Now, here, here's the point I want to make. He is a model reformer in that what he taught, he had first lived. And what he lived, he had first made sure of in the scriptures, was study and conduct and teaching, put deliberately in this right order. Each of these was able to function properly at its best. Study was saved from unreality. 
If it's just academic, it's not in the real world. It's to be in my life. Conduct from uncertainty. Well, I'm not sure, Lord, should I sleep with that woman or not? She's very attractive. No, no, it's real clear. You study the scriptures, 1 Thessalonians 4, you know what commandments we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus, that you abstain from sexual immorality. Well, she's a Christian. Really? And you? Well, we're, we're, just, we're just living together. Just want to know if we're sexually compatible. You are. Male, female, you're, you're good. You don't need to be uncertain in your practice. God's clear. Now, there are things, Scripture is clear. And in matters of conscience, where it's not clear, it's an issue not covered in Scripture, the Spirit of God will lead you. Matters of conscience are covered in the Scripture. One man can eat meat offered to an idol. What is that? Romans 14? One man can't. Let each man be fully convinced in his own mind. Most things are clear. We know in our hearts if they're right because we know the Scripture or if they're wrong. So with study, conduct, and teaching put delivery in, in this right order, each of these was able to function properly at its best. Study was saved from unreality, conduct from uncertainty, and teaching from insincerity. Because See, here's the deal. If, you're just got, if you just got Scripture in your head and all you're doing is teaching it, it's insincere. I remember doing a conference years ago, early 90s. A lot of guys, it was a big conference, and I was one of the, one of the speakers, and I'm thinking, what am I doing here? And it was one of the first things I'd ever done of that nature. And I'm sitting down next to a guy, and when they introduced me to him, I was kind of in awe because I'd read his books and followed his ministry and, I mean, written a paper on his stuff in seminary, and he's there with his wife and very outgoing and, you know, on his way to Korea to do something the next two weeks. And I read about a week later, uh, he's had ongoing affairs with eight women in his church. Well, that's teaching from insincerity. Because, you see, he went from studying the Word to teaching it and bypassed his heart. He wasn't teachable. Because he knew, he knew it was wrong, and he kept doing it. So, you see, guard your heart. Guard your heart. For out of it flows the springs of life. Ezra's the model. He was a teachable man. He was studying the scripture. He said, Lord, how does this apply to me? He was applying it to his own life, to his practice. He was, and then he would teach it. Not standing up like he had it all together and had this thing wired. Don't you appreciate it when someone who knows the Lord in a situation uh, shares a struggle or tells a story where they failed. That takes guts. It's called authenticity. But see, it's so real because we're all struggling. 
Nobody's got this stuff wired. We're all following Jesus, and we're all sinners. John Newton said, I am a great sinner, but Jesus is a great Savior. I don't have it together. You don't have it together. We're just a bunch of sheep. We're not real bright. I mean, look at you. <laughs> it's kind of fun. Huh? You can't say that at a women's conference. <laughs> Uh, number five, a uh, fifth observation. Scripture puts a priority on teachability. It must be cultivated in one's heart. Scripture puts a priority on teachability. It must be cultivated in one's heart. So when we read Proverbs 4, guard your heart for from it flows the spring's of life, you don't guard your heart, you're headed for a train wreck. You're headed for disaster. You're headed for trouble. Go back, go back for a minute to Proverbs 4, if you would. Because as we've zoomed in on it, last week we looked at the whole chapter I just want to highlight something out of Proverbs 4 here. In 23, watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flows the springs of life. Proverbs is a father teaching a son about life. And you, you see there, we pointed this out last week, in Proverbs 4, verse 1, hear, O sons, the instruction of a father. And then in 3, he says, when I was a son to my father, uh, God's truth is to be passed on from generation to generation. The father is to be the primary spiritual teacher. Now, we have pastors. Not, everyone's not a pastor, and, you know, we don't all know the scriptures and then the seminary. But there are two ways to teach. You teach by your words, and you teach with your life. Some guys have told me, oh, I can't be a really, I can't be a spiritual leader in my family. Why not? Well, my wife, my wife knows more scripture than I do. It's not how much scripture you know, it's how much scripture you apply. You see, and the kids are watching. They're watching you, they're watching me. As my son John said to me that day at the stoplight on Denton Tap in Coppell, on the way to school when that girl was walking across that crosswalk, and there wasn't a whole lot on her. And she's just walking by, and I'm there, and John's here, and Josh is in the back, and she walks by, and the light changes, and John says, you know, Dad, I was watching you to see if you were really going to watch her. I said, yeah? He said, I watch you all the time, Dad. He was maybe, what, nine, ten? Still makes me sweat. <laughs> I watch you all the time, Dad. Now, he knows what I teach. He's traveled, Josh and him, they travel with me. They know what I say. But you see, they want to know if I believe what I say. 
When I talk about being a one woman kind of man, being devoted to your wife, they're watching me. Are you going to practice that, Dad? See, this is why we have to guard our hearts. This is why you have to have other men in your life. I said it before, there are two things you can't do by yourself. You can't get married by yourself. At least not yet. <laughs> sure it's on the way. And you can't live the Christian life by yourself. We walk with others. He who walks with wise men will be wise. Scripture puts a high priority on teachability. Um, all right, let's, we're going to fly through some scriptures. Uh, most of them are going to be in Proverbs, but I want to start with Matthew 7. In Matthew 7, the Sermon on the Mount, the Sermon on the Mountain is Matthew 5, 6, and 7. <clears throat> Jesus... Uh, I was talking with Sean earlier tonight back there, does our sound and all. And we were talking. And he said, hey, sometime I'd like to talk to you about how you put a message together and how you do that. And I watch Chuck and then, you know, I watch you. And I mean, do they teach you how to do that in seminary? And we're just talking like, like how do you, how do you, uh, your ending. And I know Chuck puts a lot of thought into his endings. How he wraps up. Sure. He, he, he said, how do you do your dismount? I love that. <laughs> I said, well, you got to think about it. And, you know, so yeah. And we were just talking about it a little bit. In Matthew 5, 6, and 7, notice how Jesus ends the whole thing. Notice how he dismounts. Uh, Matthew, and you know this story. Matthew 7, 24. Therefore, therefore, he's summing up everything that has come prior to this. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them, or some versions say, and does them. Therefore, everyone who hears the words and does them may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew and slammed against that house, and yet it did not fall, for it had been founded on the rock. Okay? In other words, the man who hears and does what I say, just like Ezra, you apply it to your life. Well, you get a foundation. Doesn't matter what comes into your life because you're built on me and you're built on my word. You will withstand any storm. Why? Because you're teachable. You see, when you hear and you do it, you're teachable. Now, the next guy, Jesus says in 26, everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them, does not act on them, will be like the foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew, slammed against the house, and it fell, and great was its fall. Let him who stand take heed, lest he fall. So you got two men 
The first guy is teachable, and the second guy isn't. They both heard the words of Jesus. They both heard. This guy heard it and did it. This guy heard it and didn't pay attention to it. He wasn't teachable. The first guy is wise. The second guy is a fool. Now go to, let's go to Proverbs, because Proverbs often contrasts the wise man with the foolish man. Let's go to Proverbs 5, and we'll look at verse 12. And you say, uh, all right, so here's what you have going on in Proverbs 5. Once again, you got a father teaching his son about stuff in life. In Proverbs 5, he's teaching his sons about the pitfalls of immorality. You want to avoid them. That's, that's what Proverbs 5 is all about. Uh, look at 5.1. My son, give attention to my wisdom. Incline your ear to my understanding that you may observe discretion, your lips may reserve knowledge. For the lips of an adulteress drip honey, smoother than oil is her speech. He's telling her, telling him what's going to happen, what he's going to face. Uh, her lips, the lips of an adulteress drip honey. But in the end, she's bitter as wormwood. Her feet go down to death. Her steps take hold of Sheol. She does not ponder the path of life. Her ways are unstable. She doesn't know it. Now then, my sons, listen to me. And he goes on and talks about the ramifications of sexual immorality. Twelve. And yet you say, how I have hated instruction, and my heart has spurned reproof. I have not listened to the voice of my teachers, nor inclined my ear to my instructors. You know what he's talking about there? A lack of teachability. Those in my life who love me, those in my life who have experience, those in life who are further down the trail, those who love the Lord God and know his word, and those who have instructed me and taught me, the issue is, are you going to be teachable? Uh, go, go to um, Proverbs 13.10. This says, through insolence, through insolence comes nothing but strife. Insolence is rude and disrespectful behavior. Okay, Proverbs 13, 10. Through insolence, through rude and disrespectful behavior comes nothing but strife. Have you ever been in a situation or relationship and that's what's going on? Rude and disrespectful behavior? Well, there's no peace, it's just strife. Look at the next line. But the wisdom, but wisdom is with those who receive counsel. You had a contrast. There's wisdom with the one who receives counsel. Now, everyone receives counsel. The question is, who's your, who are your counselors? Who are your advisors? And, and you see, that would be Psalm 1. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the path. I want to get the wording just right. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor in the seat of soft scoffers. In other words, I mean, let's look at it. 
Who are those people? How blessed are the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, in the advice of the wicked, in the uh, perspective of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. Oh, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. The Lord is his counselor. The truth of God is his counselor, and he'll be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in the season. It doesn't wither, and whatever he does, he prospers. Ah, the wicked are not so. They're like the chaff which the wind drives away. They're like lint. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assemblies of the righteous, but the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. You want to choose your counselors carefully. You want to be teachable to the right counselors, to those who walk with the Lord and know the Lord. Bad company corrupts good morals. 1 Corinthians 15 says, uh, were we at uh, Proverbs 13.10? Yeah. Were we there? All right, then let's go to 18.2. A fool does not delight in understanding, but only in revealing his own mind. I remember being with a Christian leader on several occasions, and I was going to be with him again, and uh, I did something on purpose this time. I would see him every few years. I, uh, this time I timed him when, he got in, when, when I got in the car with him. Because when I'd been with him before, he would talk incessantly. I mean incessantly. That's all he did was talk. He'd never ask about anything in your life. He'd never ask. He never, it was all about him. What he was working on, what he had recently written, what he was this, what this, what his vision was. He never stopped. And this time I was ready for him. After three or four experiences, I got in the car and I looked at my watch and I timed him because we were driving quite a ways. And he never stopped talking for close to five hours and 20 minutes. I, there's no exaggeration there. None. And you watch him with people, and he never inquires. He never asks, how's this? What about this? What are you in? Where are you in? No, going to school? What, you, what kind of work do you do? Hmm. A fool does not delight in understanding. He's not interested in understanding anybody, but only in revealing his own mind. Literally, only in revealing his own heart. He's got diarrhea of the mouth. That'll work in a men's study, won't it? Uh, but look at 1920. Listen to counsel and accept discipline. That you may be wise the rest of your days. We all make mistakes. We all blow it. We all do dumb things and we can't believe. How could I have been so stupid? Well, okay, we're all in the same boat. So what do you do? Listen to counsel, accept discipline that you may be wise the rest of your days. You don't have to repeat that. That's teachability. Henry Cloud writes some good stuff. He's done a chapter on the wise, the foolish, and the evil. I won't spend much time on this. But he lists some traits of wise persons. He must list eight, nine, I won't read them all. But what's interesting, 
of all of these traits of wise persons, all of these traits reflect teachability. Now, Henry is a graduate of Dallas Seminary. This is kind of a business book, but he just weaves in all kinds of scriptural principles. First trait of a wise person. When you give them feedback, they listen, take it in, and adjust their behavior accordingly. Second trait. When you give them feedback, they embrace it positively. They say things like, thanks for telling me that. It helps me to know I came across in that way. I, I didn't know. Thanks for bringing this to my attention. I'll get right on it. And then they do it. See, that's the trait of a wise person. Those traits are, they demonstrate teachability. All right, let's go to the traits of a foolish person. He's got a lot more traits of the fool. But one of the things he says as he gets into the traits of the foolish person, he says this, the fool tries to adjust the truth so that he does not have to adjust to it. That's brilliant. The fool tries to adjust the truth so that he does not have to adjust to it. Absolutely on target. First trait of a foolish person. When given feedback, they are defensive and immediately come back at you with a reason why it is not their fault. Second trait. When a mistake is pointed out, they externalize the mistake and blame someone else. Uh, here's another one. Excuses are rampant. They never take ownership of the issue. Here's another one. Their emotional response has nothing to do with remorse. Instead, they get angry at you for being on their case. They have little or no awareness or concern for the pain or frustration they are causing to others. Their emotional stance toward getting corrected is opposite of the wise person who embraces the feedback and shows appreciation for your taking the effort to share it. Instead, their stance is one of anger, disdain, or some other fight or flight response. They see themselves as the victim. And they see the people who confront them as persecutors for pointing out the problem. They feel like the morally superior victim and often find someone to rescue them and agree with how bad you are for being against them. Their world is divided into the good guys and the bad guys. The good ones are the ones who agree with them and see them as good, and the bad ones are the ones who don't think that they are perfect. I don't like people like that. Quite frankly, I loathe people like that. But I know I can be like that. And I don't want to be like that. So what's the solution? Guard your heart. For from it flows the springs of life. Couple more minutes. There's not that much on TV tonight. Back to Dave Kraft and teachability. 
He says, wisdom, from God's perspective, lies in knowing how to take advice without being either defensive or condescending. Wisdom is evident when we humble ourselves to learn even from those who admittedly know less than we do and are perhaps not as experienced in the issues of life. I'm not sure I read this paragraph previously. If I did, it's worth reading again. If not, we need to read it. He says, I have met Christians advanced in age who are still teachable, and I have met young Christians who are not. I have met young Christians... Now, I personally am acquainted with some extremely humble leaders, but I've also crossed paths with some arrogant leaders who have a hard time listening to anyone but themselves. I have known a few leaders who wanted to learn, but somewhat ironically didn't want to be taught. They wanted to learn on their own and were not sincerely open to have anyone else speak into their lives. It's sad to say the least. If a leader is not teachable, he will be resistant to hearing instruction both from God and from others and will likely make little progress when it comes to personal growth and spiritual maturity. Watch this. The unteachable leader will eventually fall into other sins and disqualify himself. Of course, he's not teachable. Someone who loves him say, hey man, you probably don't want to go down that path. Well, he's not listening to you. He knows better than you. That's why he will fall in other sins and disqualify himself. He doesn't listen to counsel. He says the final point we must consider is the underlying cause of the lack of teachability in a man and its pride. Proverbs 26, 12, do you see a man who is wise in his own eyes? There is more hope for a fool than for him. Why is this true? It is true because pride puts a person beyond the perceived need for instruction. The proud man says to himself, I don't need the wisdom of God's word. I've already got it. I don't need the instruction and encouragement of others. I'm beyond that sort of thing. I don't need to be held accountable for my actions. Who are they to tell me what to do or not to do? The proud heart is impervious to rebuke and insensitive to conviction. That's why he is more hopeless than a fool. So how do we uproot pride from our hearts and become teachable? How do we overcome the insidious influence of pride in our lives? There are many answers but none more helpful than the principle we find in 1 Corinthians 4, 7, which says, and what do you have that you have not received? And why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Anything that you have, anything that you would become proud about is a gift of God. He finishes, to know that all we have is a gift, that all we experience in joy is an expression of God's goodness and not ours, is to take the first step in dethroning pride from our hearts and cultivating an attitude of teachability. C.S. Lewis said, the greatest danger of pride is when you think you're not proud. That's why the scripture says, take heed. Let him who stands take heed lest he fall. 
But if I pray the prayer in Psalm 139 at the end, it is a great prayer, guys, for our hearts. You know you can pray for your heart? You can pray that God will help you to guard your heart? Psalm 139 is a majestic psalm about the greatness of God from verses 1 down to verse 16, um, actually down to 17 and 18. And then in 19, David takes a turn because he gets his eyes off God and he gets his eyes on the enemies of God and those who are undermining the work of God and distorting the truth of God, and he gets angry. He says, Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. Depart from me, men of bloodshed, for they speak against you wickedly, and your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? Do I not loathe those who rise up against you? Did I not say that I loathe people like that? Okay. So this applies to me. I hate them with the utmost hatred. They have become my enemies. He's right on the edge. Now watch this. Watch him guard his heart. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there be any hurtful way in me and lead me in the everlasting way. He's checking himself. So let me go off the edge here. I'm angry. The Lord, let me guard my heart. He'll do it for us. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for the power of your word. It's so practical. Verses written thousands of years ago are as practical today <laughs> because they speak to our lives and our hearts and our existence. Thank you that you're our Savior, that you forgive us, that you instruct us after we've been forgiven. When we repent, you remove our sin from us, and then you teach us and instruct us, and we can move on with a new heart and with our sin forgiven, and we're thoroughly cleansed. So we ask for teachable spirits, teachable hearts, the next time we get a word of criticism, could be tonight, could be tomorrow at work, help us to guard our hearts and respond in a way that will honor you. There just may be a nugget of truth we need to hear. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.